We're actually beginning chapter 12 today, but I'm going to back up to the last two verses of Hebrews 11, and then we're going to go into the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. So we're not going to cover all of chapter 12 today. We're going to cover really just the first two verses. We're really sprinting through Hebrews. There's so much. It's such a wonderful book of the Bible. Um, And we could literally spend a year or more just teaching through Hebrews. But we're not doing that. But we are going to take enough time that we don't just overlook some things that are really important for us to consider. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. So today is not really a Mother's Day message, but yet again, it really is a Mother's Day message because the gospel applies to mothers as much as it applies to everybody. And we are in Hebrews chapter 12, and as you heard in the children's story, the children's lesson, We are talking about laying aside the things that weighed us down, the sin that so easily ensnares us, and running our race with endurance, looking unto Jesus. And if anyone needs to be encouraged to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and to run with endurance the race that is before us, looking unto Jesus, it is mothers. This is encouragement we all need. And we all are commanded to do just that. But it may be true that mothers need that encouragement, if not more. I would say they certainly need it perhaps more often. Especially mothers of young children need that encouragement more often than others. And that is especially true as they faithfully grapple moment by moment with the joy-filled heavy burden. Did you hear that? The joy-filled, heavy burden and responsibility that God has blessed them and equipped them to carry. But this command, really three things the Bible commands us to do that we're going to look at today in these first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. These are commands that we all should heed, keeping in mind Our text today, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 39, and Hebrews chapter 12, through chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 12. You ready? Hebrews 11, 39, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here in Hebrews chapter 12, we see that this this chapter flows directly from and out of Hebrews chapter 11, the recounting of the great cloud of witnesses who lived and walked and died by faith. From this great history lesson on faith in Hebrews 11, we flow right into this phrase, therefore we also... Recorded for us in Hebrews 12.1. 
So as we read here, we should understand that it is encouraging us through the faith of those mentioned in chapter 11. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now remember, this letter was not written to us, but it was written for us. And the writer of Hebrews was telling these Jewish believers living in Italy reminding them that they are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And we should also be reminded, and we should also know that we too are surrounded by an even greater cloud of witnesses now 2,000 years after the writing of this letter. And he says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, and what we understand that he is implying, as they did. Let us lay aside, as they did, what? Every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance, as they did, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. This is what we saw in Hebrews 11, that as they lived by faith, as they ran their race by faith, they did so looking unto Jesus. And now the writer of the letter here, the apostle is writing and he's telling them just like the saints of old did, just like Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just like Noah, just like Moses, just like like Abel, just like all of the saints of old, the named and the unnamed ones, the ones who lived and overcame and the ones who died in persecution, they ran their race by faith. They laid aside every weight and sin by faith. They ran with endurance by faith. They looked unto Jesus by faith. The faithful men and women recorded in Hebrews 11 were looking unto Jesus, obtaining a good testimony by faith, but they were not made perfect apart from us. So we go back to Hebrews 11.40, where the writer pins these words, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So he says, those guys ran their race by faith, looking unto Jesus by faith, trusting in Jesus by faith, but they did not obtain something different. They didn't obtain something worse. They didn't obtain something better. God having provided something better for us, that we should not be made perfect apart, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So the question, it begs the question, what is the better thing that God has for us? Is the writer of Hebrews saying that we have a better heaven? That we have a better life here on earth? Because we have technology and they didn't? That somehow our life is better than their life? No, that's not what he's saying. Our heaven is not going to be better than their heaven. Our salvation is not better than their salvation. In fact, they have the very same salvation that we do. The better thing that God has provided for us is Christ. Specifically, Christ come in the flesh. What those saints of old could only look to by faith, we now have in reality. Though they were saved the very same way we are, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice and his righteousness imputed to us, 
The promise of Christ's coming was seen by faith by those saints recounted for us in Hebrews 11. In other words, they could only see Christ, the promise yet unfulfilled. They could only see him by faith. The better thing for us is the reality of Christ's coming, his life and death and resurrection in the flesh, promised from the beginning that is now ours in reality. They waited for his coming, but we enjoy him as having come. Yes, we're waiting for the final return of Jesus, but I've got news for you. Jesus has already come. We're not waiting for Jesus to come. He's already come. We're just waiting for him to return. And we know he's going to return, and his return is certain and imminent because he has already come. Just as they were by faith looking unto Jesus who was promised to come, we must by faith be looking unto Jesus as having already come. The reality of his coming makes certain his return and gives us hope as we run with endurance the race that is set before us. We must run that race laying aside every weight and sin. So we want to focus on three very important things commanded us in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2. The first one is this, we are commanded this, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We're commanded to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We are commanded, number two, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're not just encouraged to run. We're encouraged to run with endurance the race that is set before us. That implies a race, a course, a start, and a finish, and everything in between that start and that finish. That's our life. We're not running here and there like a chicken with its head cut off. We're running with purpose. Looking, this is the third thing we're commanded to do, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. We lay aside, looking unto Jesus. We run with endurance, looking unto Jesus. We do all things, looking unto Jesus. So let's look at this first command. Let us lay aside. Remember, he begins this chapter with these words, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Our life is likened to a race that is set before us. If you think about preparing to run a race, you consider those things that would weigh you down and entangle or ensnare you or hinder you from running your race. As we run our race, we lay aside those things that weigh us down and ensnare us. We have to let go of those things that will hinder us from running our race with endurance. So we're not called to just run the race as far as we can and as fast as we can. We're called to run the race with endurance. And the context of this race is the context of our life. And I would be willing to bet that each person here wants to live their life as long as you possibly can. Which means that your race is not a sprint. It's not a 100 meter dash. It is more like a marathon that spans 
the entirety of your life. And if you're going to run a race that long and that far, you better be prepared to run it with endurance, which means we've got to be willing to lay aside those things that weight us down and those sins that entangle and ensnare us. When we think of the things that weigh us down, we must consider those things that create distractions, things that take us off course and keep us from progressing forward in our race. Listen to the words of Jesus from the parable of the sower, recorded for us in Matthew, 18, Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower, Jesus says. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundred, some thirty, some sixty, some thirtyfold. So here's the command, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We need to guard against the word being snatched away from our hearts. I'm going to preach to you and I do every Sunday. I preach to you and I teach you as though you are the last plot of ground described in Jesus' parable. I preach to you and I teach, teach you as though you are good soil. And the good seed of God's word is going forth and being planted in the good soil of your heart. That's how I preach to you. That's how I teach to you. Whether that's true or not, only you and God knows. Or maybe you don't know. Maybe only God knows. But the good news is this. The same word that bears fruit in good soil is the same word that gets snatched away on the wayside. The problem is not the seed. The problem is not the word. The problem is the heart. And we know that the only one that can give us a new heart is God. That's recorded for us in Ezekiel chapter 18, where God makes a promise again, looking ahead by faith when God would in Jesus Christ, give to us new hearts. That's where we are today as New Testament believers. Jesus having already come, if you are born again today, it's because God has given to you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that's not stone cold and dead, but a heart that's moldable and pliable and open to the word of God being planted in it like good soil, a farmer plants his seed in to produce a harvest. But even though we are good soil, we should not take for granted the warnings that exist in this parable. There is an enemy out there that wants to snatch from you the word sown in your heart. 
And if we take God's word for granted, if we take God for granted and his grace for granted and and, and all that he has given us in Christ Jesus for granted, it is very possible that that enemy is able to come and snatch that word from us. If we get weighted down with the cares of this world or if our life becomes so shallow, we should all guard against shallowness. Because when we're shallow... This word can be sown, but it can't take root. And that word cannot endure. There is no endurance there. And what are we commanded to do? We're commanded to lay aside these things so that we can run our race with endurance. The cares of this world that weight us down, that choke out the word of God and make us unfruitful. Those things that we see in the parable, that's not what this parable is about, by the way. But we can take the truths from this parable, the lessons from this parable, and apply them to our lives, even as those who are of good soil. Because we should be vigilant in guarding the word that is implanted in our heart. David said, your word, O God, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we lay aside every weight in the sin which easily ensnares us. We need to guard against the word being snatched away from our hearts. We need to be conscious of the temptation to compromise and stumble because of tribulation and persecution, because of the pressure and the heat the world may put on us to compromise our message and to water down our message and redefine those things we know to be true, but it's easier just to get along and go along than it is to stand against the tide. No! Stand against the tide, stand against the current of the world and proclaim what is true and don't wilt under the pressure. We need to recognize our tendency to be weighed down with the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word and make us unfruitful. If we are faithful, we will by faith lay aside the things that hinder our race. We will not allow the word to be snatched from our hearts. We will not regard tribulation and persecution more than we regard God. And so we will not stumble or compromise. We will not allow the cares of this world to choke out the word and make us unfruitful. How will we not allow those things? By faith, we will not allow them. By faith, we will trust God and we will purpose to lay aside those things that weigh us down and the sin that so easily ensnares us. By faith, we will hide the word in our hearts. By faith, we will be deeply rooted in Christ and endure the tribulation and persecution the world may bring. By faith, we will flourish and thrive in the word of God, by the spirit of God, and be fruitful to the glory of God. By faith, we must lay aside the things that weigh us down and ensnare us. By faith, we purpose to bear the fruit of the good word of God sown in our hearts, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, laying aside those things by faith. We are commanded to run our race with endurance. Let us run our race with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We lay aside those weights and sins so that we may run with endurance the race, our life. The race is your life. The race is our life. How are you running your race? 
How are you living your life? By faith, laying aside those things so that you can run with endurance, or are you weighted down with the cares of this world and the stress and the struggle of life? See, I told you this message was relevant for Mother's Day. God knew. He put us right here in Hebrews 12, just for you mothers. But not only for you mothers, because this is all of us. This is every single one of us. Let us run our race with endurance. Our race is a marathon, not a sprint. The point of running of race is to obtain the prize. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? And then he says this, run in such a way that you may obtain it. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. The scripture commands us to run our race in such a way that we would obtain the prize. And if you're not running to obtain the prize, then why are you running the race? And if you're not running to obtain the prize, you will not run your race with endurance. At some point along the way, you will quit. You will give it up. We are commanded to run in such a way that we may obtain the prize. The way we do this is to lay aside the things that hinder us from running with endurance We must purpose to live our life in this way. As children of God, we do not live without purpose. And we must not make worldly accomplishments our purpose for living. I'm going to say that again. As children of God, we do not live without purpose. And we must not make worldly accomplishments our purpose for living. Christ is our life. And he is our reason. He is our purpose for living. And if you are hung up on the worldly accomplishments and the worldly things of life, if money is your God, if things are your God, if those are the things that you're hung up on, you need to repent. That is sin. You need to repent. And let Jesus become your purpose, your reason for living. Don't waste your resources, the most valuable being your time. But everything God has blessed you with is a resource to be used for his purpose and his glory. Guess what? Your money is a resource God gives you to be used for his glory and his purpose. Not for you or for me to waste it on whatever, whenever. Our time, everything we have, our families, our possessions, Our relationships, these are things that God has blessed us with to be used for his glory. That is the reason, that is the purpose God gives us those things. So we lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run our race with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we run? Not just with endurance, but we run looking unto Jesus. This is also how we lay aside the weight and the sin. And this is how we run with endurance. We do it by looking unto Jesus. The word translated looking here has a deeper meaning than we might realize. We say, oh, look, and we look. Look, there's a squirrel. And we look, there's a squirrel. 
This word means more than, hey, look, there's a squirrel. Hey, look, there's a shooting star. Oh, you missed it. You didn't look quick enough. This word look has a deeper meaning than that. Looking unto Jesus is fixing our gaze upon Jesus, turning away from everything else. Looking unto Jesus is more than simply looking upon Jesus. This word has the force of looking into Jesus. To quote Charles Spurgeon, we shall do well if we look on Jesus, but better still if we are found looking into Jesus. I agree with Mr. Spurgeon. It is one thing to look upon Jesus. It is another thing entirely to look into Jesus. We are looking unto Jesus, or we could say we are looking into Jesus. We are not looking back. Looking unto Jesus speaks of looking forward. When you run a race, what direction are you looking? Do you run looking at the starting line or do you run looking toward the finish line? You run a race looking toward the finish line, looking forward. Looking unto Jesus is not looking back to the things vanished away. We're not looking back to the system of sacrifice under the law by, uh, that, that they had in the temple. This is the point of the writer to the Hebrews here. And we are today not looking back to dead works or to future dead works of the flesh, which we may offer to God through good deeds we perform, thinking we can save ourselves. Oh, I haven't done anything for someone else in a while. I think I'll go down to Shepherd's Heart and volunteer. I'll feel better about myself. Well, you may feel better about yourself, and that's great, and that's good. Go down to Shepherd's Heart and volunteer, but don't think you're volunteering at Shepherd's Heart or helping the little lady cross the road. Or, you know, we just bought that brand new house. You know, I haven't given anything to God in a while. I think I'll write a check to the church and send the church a check. I need some brownie points with God. That's not how it works, guys. It's not how it works. The Bible calls those dead works. Dead works of the flesh. We may offer those to God with good intentions, but they do absolutely nothing for us. We may think we're performing things that can contribute to our salvation, but they are actually damning us to hell. Now, we are called to look unto Jesus. We are looking unto Jesus and into Jesus with a gaze that is fixed toward him that cannot be distracted because Jesus is the only salvation that we have. We look to Jesus who has come in the flesh and finished our redemption by his blood and his righteousness. We look to the finished work of Christ, the only work that can perfect us. The only way to apply the finished work of Christ is through faith. Faith in Christ not only saves us, but faith in Christ changes us. If we're not looking to Jesus beyond this world, we are walking in our path. We are walking in, let me say that again. If we are not looking to Jesus beyond this world that we are walking in, then our path will not be straight or in the way that is according to his righteousness. In other words, if we just set out on a journey and we don't know where we're going and we're not looking to that point, that finish line, we're wandering with no direction. That's not running a race. That's wandering aimlessly through life. 
And the child of God, the believer is not called to wander aimlessly through life. We're called to run our race, to run with endurance the race, the course that is set before us. Your course is your life. God has set it before you. And we all have spent too much time, too many years perhaps, wandering aimlessly, trying to find our course. But once God has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and he reveals our course to us, then we need to get down to the business of laying aside the weights and the sins and running with endurance the race that is set before us. And the only way we can do that is by looking unto Jesus. If we are not looking unto Jesus, our wandering will take us to all manner of places we will regret going, and our path will lead us to destruction ultimately. If we are looking to Jesus, we can be assured he leads us in the pathway to life and joy forevermore. Listen to Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is that psalm referring to? It's referring to Jesus. Jesus shows us the path of life. He is the path of life. He is life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we look to Jesus who has by grace already perfected us by his sacrifice and his righteousness through faith. The deeds of the law and the works of the flesh can never make us perfect. Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. Put another way, Jesus is the beginner and the completer of our faith. Only in Jesus will we find the beginning and the completion of our faith. Jesus is the author or the beginner of our faith, and he is the finisher or completer of it as well. Jesus begins our faith, and Jesus brings us to glory to complete our faith. Hebrews 2:10 For it is fitting for him who for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. That's the completion of our faith. The completion of our faith is that God will through Jesus Christ bring us to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. By the way, that word captain there is the very same word translated author in Hebrews 12. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Paul writes, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's the progression. There is the beginning of our faith, and there is the completion of our faith. From beginning to glory. I want you to notice as Paul writes that, he uses the past tense. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, past tense, he also called, past tense. Whom he called, past tense, he also justified, past tense. Whom he justified, past tense, he also glorified, past tense. What does that mean? That means that if you're a child of God, 
you can be assured that your destiny is glory. If you are a child of God, if Jesus is the originator, the beginner of your faith, you can be assured that he will complete it. He will finish it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying there in Romans 8, 29, and 30. He says it a different way in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who began the work in you? God did. Who will complete the work? God will. Until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ, until you are glorified with Jesus in his glory before the Father. Jesus began the work and Jesus will complete the work. For he is the author and the finisher, the beginner and the completer of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy Jesus looked forward to as he endured the cross, was the glorification that followed his sufferings and the headship over all believers. It was not just his glorification, it was our glorification. That is the joy that Jesus looked to as he endured the suffering of the cross. It wasn't Jesus on the cross going, boy, I just can't wait to get back to the air conditioning of heaven. This cross is hot and uncomfortable and painful. Boy, I just can't wait to get... No, Jesus was looking far beyond that. That was not even, that's almost blasphemous to even say something like that about Jesus. Because what Jesus looked to, the glory, the joy that Jesus looked to is so much greater than what we can understand and comprehend in our humanness. But what Jesus looked to means that you and I were part of that joy. Jesus was looking toward as he endured the suffering of his earthly incarnation. The joy set before Jesus was the glorification that awaited him in his ascension to the Father and the glorification that awaits every child of God that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Despising the shame does not mean that the shame was a small thing, but that in comparison with the joy, Christ disregarded it. In other words, the shame was great, but the joy was so much greater that the shame was not even worthy of consideration when Jesus considered the cross. And having endured he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 10, chapters, chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. But this man, after he had suffered, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. A reminder, it's not us, it's God. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Christ suffered and died and rose again and ascended to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we were dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. The glorification of Jesus is our glorification in Christ. This is the joy that Jesus saw and looked to as he endured the suffering of the cross. The significance of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God is that Jesus is victorious over sin and death and all of his enemies. The significance that we are seated with Jesus is that we are victorious in him over sin and death and all of our enemies because all of his enemies are all of our enemies. As Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in victory, we have been seated with him in his victory. And that church is very good news. And that truth and that knowledge is why we are looking unto Jesus. We're not looking back. We're not looking left. We're not looking right. We're not looking to ourselves or anyone or anything else. We are looking unto Jesus, laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That is possible because Jesus made it possible. Because Jesus endured because Jesus overcame. Because Jesus has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Victorious. And the Bible says we are seated with him there. Meaning we are victorious with him there. We have every reason to lay aside, to run and to look to Jesus. And to do it with all the gusto and with all the glory we can muster that his name would be exalted and he would be glorified. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table today, we come victorious over sin and death by the victory won for us in the cross by Christ. As Jesus endured the suffering and shame of the cross for the joy that was before him, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us for the joy that, has, that is before us in Jesus, for he is the fullness of our love and our joy and our peace, now and forever. Amen. I invite you to come to the table of the Lord, the table he has prepared for us and invited us to, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, come to the table. Let's all stand. Here's your charge today. Well, today is Mother's Day, but the gospel is what we all need, right? Not just mothers. Mothers, fathers, men, women, children, young, old, everyone. The gospel is what we need. It is what wives and mothers, it's what husbands and fathers, it's what children, it's what the church needs. It's certainly what the world needs. Husbands, the greatest gift you can give your wife is to live the gospel and to lead them in it. 
Fathers, lead your wives and family in the gospel. Mothers, lead your children in the gospel. The gospel must inform us in all things. We need the gospel of Christ to break through the hardness and the rebellion of our hearts. As the song says, we are prone to wander. But the gospel leads us in the right way. The Holy Spirit is our guide, leading us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. We must surrender to the control of the Spirit and the will of God. We are charged to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We are charged to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are charged to always be looking unto Jesus, the beginner and the completer of our faith. The just shall live by faith. Faith is not mental assent. It's not what we say we believe. Faith is actually doing what we say we believe. Faith must be seen in the living of our life. Faith walks, in fact, faith runs. Faith runs with endurance the race that is set before us. We must know that Christ is our life. Christ, therefore, must be our all-consuming purpose for living. For Christ is the beginner and the completer of our faith. Purpose to be yielded, a yielded vessel bearing the fruit of God's Spirit used for God's glory in the life of your family in the life of his church, in the life of Christ's fellowship, in the life of our community, and wherever God chooses to use you. Our charge is to run our race, to live our life with endurance, looking unto Jesus, not taking for granted his promise, but living with the purpose to glorify God in all things. Amen.